ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It is a truth universally acknowledged that it is always the right time to read, talk, and think about Pride and Prejudice. But why is it this book that we universally acknowledge? Why has Pride and Prejudice lasted for over two centuries as the most famous romance novel of all time? This season of Hot and Bothered, award-winning journalist Lauren Sandler and me, Vanessa Zoltan, are looking closely at Pride and Prejudice, interviewing experts and trying to figure out what this book has taught generations of readers about love. Listen to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hello, FP Playlist listeners. This is Ravi Agrawal, Editor-in-Chief of Foreign Policy. For this week's Playlist episode, we're featuring one of the latest interviews from FP Live, our magazine's forum for live journalism, where we discuss world affairs with the greatest experts and policymakers. Take a listen. Hello and welcome to FP Live, Foreign Policy Magazine's Forum for Live Journalism. I'm Amelia Lester, FP's Executive Editor, and I'll be your host for the next 45 minutes. It's less than a week before US voters head to the polls to elect candidates for local and state offices across the country. We are here today to discuss the biggest issues in this critical midterm election and what that election means for US foreign policy. It's clear that whatever the results on November the 8th are, they have far-reaching implications well beyond America's own borders. That's in a moment, but first some housekeeping notes. If it's your first time joining us, welcome. FP Live is where we convene experts and policymakers to discuss world affairs. FP subscribers have the opportunity to ask questions using the comments box, which our producers behind the scenes will send along to me and help inform my line of questioning. I already have received some pretty excellent questions, but please do write in. Much is at stake in this election, with Republicans seeking to take control of Congress from their rivals in the Democratic Party. Polls at the moment are showing they have a pretty good chance of doing so. And the implications of this are significant for American democracy. There are many Trump allies denying Joe Biden won the presidency in 2020 who are running for office at the local and at the state level. A Republican takeover of Congress would make the remainder of Biden's tenure difficult, not only in terms of passing budgets or approving nominees for key positions, but also Biden could face multiple congressional investigations if Republicans regain control. Trump Republicans in key battleground states could also be a driving force to contest future elections, including, of course, the presidency in 2024. As much as the results matter for America's political future and what happens in the next presidential election here, this election is also being closely watched in capitals around the world. In Moscow and Kiev, people are wondering how much longer the US is going to support Russia's war in Ukraine. In Beijing, where Xi Jinping's closest circle and the business community are watching to see just how much tougher the administration might get on China. And from Riyadh, they're following these elections to see whether the administration follows up on its promises to put human rights before oil prices, or perhaps whether it will even cut ties with the royal family there for its recent move to slash oil production. 
With me today to talk about all these issues and more are Foreign Policy's very own in-house team of reporters. We have Amy McKinnon, who covers national security and intelligence, Ravi Grammer, a diplomacy and national security reporter, and Jack Detch, who covers the Pentagon and national security as well. Welcome back to FP Live, all of you. Let's dive in. Let's start with you, Jack. Let me come to you for a very brief domestic look at what might happen here and the implications for US politics. The races for both houses of Congress are expected to be close. Republicans are favored to win the House, but the race for the Senate is a more complicated one and is dependent on just a few states. So, Jack, what happens if Republicans do regain control of just the House? Well, Amelia, the Republicans are likely to use the Democrats' most famous bumper sticker slogan against them. It's the economy, stupid. And, and we're seeing that uh, this morning with a new Wall Street Journal poll uh, that's interviewed voters from around the country, uh, they're most concerned about inflation and economic uncertainty, a possible recession, and increasingly freaked out that Biden is prioritizing Ukraine over kitchen table economic issues that they're worried about. They're, of course, coming into this election on Tuesday with the wind at their backs. Uh, the, the Cook Political Report, the nonpartisan group that forecasts elections, uh, shows the Republicans at about 188 solid seats uh, that's 218 for control of the chamber. So they need to win about 30 competitive races uh, to get to that magic number. Uh, and we see the Republicans also potentially focusing on, on jobs, jobs, jobs as, as they attack the Democrats on these issues. Uh, they're going to be much more on the offensive with regards to China and, and the offshoring that's gone on for the past several decades, uh, trying to get some of those jobs back to the United States. Uh, and we're also likely to see within the Republican caucus in the House in particular, uh, probably these front bencher versus back bencher fights that have been emblemized by Kevin McCarthy, potentially the next Speaker of the House, who said that within his caucus, he has to defend this, these billions and billions of dollars in aid that are going to, to Ukraine, perhaps $60 billion going during the lame duck session. So look for these, these pro-Trump Republicans coming into Congress, these Tea Party Republicans who have been on the back bench, to continue to press the initiative uh, against perhaps those, those more establishment committee chairs that we see uh, pressing for Ukraine to get more aid. We're going to talk a little bit more about those divisions within the Republican Party on foreign policy in a bit. I want to ask you, though, what does it look like if the Republicans regain control of the Senate as well as the House, and how much does that handicap the Biden administration? It would be a major handicap for the Biden administration, but it's not a silver bullet that the Republicans will take the upper chamber of Congress. Uh, it's looking like there are about five competitive races in store, uh, many of them in, in Rust Belt states and in states where, where Biden was able to expand the Democratic map. Uh, we see Arizona and Georgia races that will come down to the wire, uh, Pennsylvania and that open Senate race uh, between John Fetterman and Mehmet Oz, of course, the famous a TV doctor coming down to the wire as well. Uh, but it's not a stretch to say this could be a real lame duck period for Biden foreign policy. Uh, we've already seen the power of the Republicans in the minority uh, in blocking and, and holding up Biden nominees, as you alluded to, Amelia. Ted Cruz, after the, the Biden administration, launched a waiver for the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, allowing that to go ahead temporarily, uh, held up most of Biden's State Department nominees for a great amount of time and really slowed the bureaucracy down. Uh, we could see a much more major investigation 
of Afghanistan and, and the chaos that went down during that two week withdrawal in August 2021. And of course, the deaths of those 13 US service members at Abbey Gate. Uh, so there's going to be a lot of pressure there uh, and just pressure uh, from the Senate Republicans who have been a little bit more establishment on Ukraine, on the defense budget, to raise that defense budget ceiling towards the, the magic trillion dollar number mark, uh, and of course, to support Ukraine with long range weapons, which the administration has been re reluctant to do. Amy, let's talk a little bit about those investigations that Jack mentioned. The Republicans are likely to launch multiple investigations if they regain majority control, as Jack says. What do those mean for the government and its ability to govern? And what are the larger implications of having these types of investigations, including potentially impeachment-style investigations, for U.S. standing in the world? I think at the moment, based on what we're hearing from members and candidates, it's really a question of what won't be what what they won't be investigating uh, if the Republicans do uh, succeed in taking the House. I think after four years of the Democrats having the gavel, uh, the Republicans are really chomping at the bit. You know, there is, of course. Um, a lingering perception very widely across the board amongst the Republicans that, that, that Trump was unfairly investigated, um, you know, the Russia investigations, um, that he was unfairly impeached uh, is definitely the view in both counts um, amongst many Republicans. And so I think we are going to see a sense of, well, now the shoe is on the other foot. You know, we have the gavel, you know, let's see what we can do. Um, I think in terms of, uh, you know, on the, on the domestic front, I think it's going to be both uh, public and private entities that are going to be investigated. There was an interesting report in Axios yesterday Today that many corporate entities are now lawyering up uh, in preparation for potential investigations, including big tech, um, you know, accusations from Republicans that they've been overly uh, censorious, um, companies who've received government aid, um, and also, you know, I think there's been talk of kind of probes into so you know so-called woke culture as as some would view it um, amongst these large corporations. Um, other and the more kind of domestic issues, you know, I think Hunter Biden is certainly going to be a focus for uh, for the House Oversight Committee. Um, his his business ties abroad, um, the DOJA, the investigation into um, into into Trump's Mar-a-Lago Mar property and his his holding of classified documents there. Um, there's been calls uh, for the impeachment of the uh, um, of the Secretary of the Department for Homeland Security. Uh, Alejandro Mayorkas. Um, immigration will, of course, be a big focus. And then on the foreign policy front, as Jack said, I mean, I think two of the big priorities are certainly going to be um, Afghanistan. We have not seen a any kind of detailed accounting from the Biden administration of, of what went wrong, you know, why they why the Afghan government collapsed so quickly and the Afghan military melted away like it did. And so I think that House Republicans really see that this is an opportunity to do that in that place. And we've already seen some kind of early hints of this from the interim report from uh, House Foreign Affairs Committee Republicans. And I think the other strand on the foreign policy front they're really going to look to dig into is going to be COVID, the origins of COVID, and of course, the Biden administration's response to that as well. Robbie, one thing that's been confusing me is that midterm elections in the US are typically seen as a referendum on the party in power. Now, Biden isn't doing too well in terms of his approval ratings, but it seems to me that this election is a litmus test for both the Republicans and the Democrats. Why is that? Break that down for us, if you could. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a great point. Um, I mean, as, as Jack and Amy said, there's a lot on the domestic front here. Um, us at Foreign Policy Magazine would love to think that foreign policy is, is the hot button issue in the midterms. That's uh, not always the case with all voters. 
Um, but but there's still a lot um, playing out against the backdrop on foreign policy that are that are influencing the uh, the domestic politics here. Um, I think in in the way it's 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 a litmus test for the Republicans insofar as it's as it's the first test to see the extent to which Trumpism still resonates with the public, particularly in battleground states after he's after he's left the White House, uh, albeit reluctantly. Um, the Democrats are really obviously struggling on the economy and energy prices. There's always, every time midterms comes up, there's this fixation on gas prices, good or bad. Um, and the Republicans have really been uh, politically hitting Biden over that, over surging gas prices. Um, I think to the extent uh, that, uh, as Jack said, it's the economy stupid, um, we're, we're going to find out in these midterms. Uh, how much Biden's talking points that know these ener spiking energy prices are because of Vladimir Putin, because of this invasion of Ukraine and the and the global supply shocks from that um, really resonates with voters or or whether, you know, the Republicans arguments that you can't blame Putin for everything, you know, inflation, the economy, uh, gas prices are up because of your own policies as well uh, will will convince voters to 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 vote red. Amy, let's spend a beat on the on the broader debate that's happening within the GOP on foreign policy. Uh, you've spent some time recently with Republican operatives when you were reporting your profile of Elise Stefanik. What were the camps that you started observing within the Republican Party on foreign policy? Well, it's just not on foreign policy alone. I mean, I think there is a very... Uh... Uh, lively, let's put it, conversation going on within the Republican Party about what it represents these days. And I see two um, kind of broad wings. One, of course, is the, uh, um, uh, you know, to put it in foreign policy terms, the more kind of isolationist, America first, uh, uh, very MAGA-orientated, make, make America great again, MAGA-orientated um, Trump kind of wing of the party. And then there is um, more kind of establishment conservatives, your Reagan conservatives, who have always been a lot more um, kind of hawkish about, you know, just overseas dealings in general. Um, what is interesting is that um, I think in terms of how they may govern, you know, the Republican Party has seen populist surges throughout its history from, you know, the isolation of isolationism of the 1930s, the John Birch Society to the Tea Party. But, you know, one thing I think which is distinct about this current phase is that historically getting into office, getting and, and getting down to the brass tacks of governing has tended to have a bit of a moderating effect. And you saw people who were real firebrands on the campaign trail actually kind of being able to work quite effectively in Congress. Not so much the case uh, with some of the more um, uh, outspoken, let's say, uh, members of the party that have been elected in recent years. And I think, you know, we're going to talk about this in a little bit, but this this whole debate really maps quite onto the really maps neatly onto the question of Ukraine aid. And we're really seeing that that tussle playing out within the party between um you know, the, the, the very hawkish um, foreign policy kind of national security crowd versus the uh, the, the more isolationist Trump crowd. Let's talk a little bit about that question of aid to Ukraine, because it was the biggest issue that uh, FP subscribers wrote in to ask about. So to set the scene, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy suggested cutting U.S. funding of Ukraine's war effort last month, and that received a ton of criticism from both sides of the aisle. Liz Cheney, for instance, called him the pro-Putin wing of the party. Jack, are we seeing these Trump-branded isolationists taking hold of the party, and do you think we'll see more of that if they regain more power in Congress? The short answer is is yes, Amelia. I mean, we see uh, on the international scene a rising China uh, a Russian invasion of Ukraine, major threats to the free world generally, but not a red blaring national security threat that affects Americans at home. 
or affects Americans' pocketbooks. Uh, so, I mean, you're seeing a lot more Trump-branded Republicans that are skeptical of U.S. involvement. But as Amy said, this, this dates back, of course, generations in the Republican Party. Uh, and we're also seeing the, the Tea Party Republicans that are still in, in office uh, casting doubt on America's involvement in the world. And, and one race where we've seen that most emphatically uh, is the race in the Utah Senate between Mike Lee, who's a, a Tea Party Republican, came in with the Tea Party wave during the Obama administration, against Evan McMullen, who's a, a presidential candidate, uh, sort of a more neoconservative background, uh, was very, of course, uh, involved in uh, the, the fight on, on Capitol Hill regarding Syria aid uh, in the past. So I, I think we're seeing... Uh, without it just in general throughout uh, the Republican Party, uh, this fight taking place. And the other way, of course, we've talked about sort of it's the economy, stupid, the economic portion. The the Republicans also, uh, in terms of the, the Trump branded Republicans and even the establishment Republicans are having to cope with with these economic woes uh, and trying to sort of out um, American out American made uh, these Democrats. Uh, particularly in the Ohio Senate race, we see J.D. Vance uh, in a major tussle with Tim Ryan, who also ran for president uh, in the 2020 race, uh, fighting about who can sort of onshore manufacturing faster, who can onshore semiconductors faster, make the United States more resilient uh, to these tremors that we see in the international system. So it's, it's going to be an ongoing debate. Uh, and of course, with the Ukraine aid package coming up in the lame duck session, looking at about 50 to 60 billion there, more for Ukraine, uh, going to be a major fight. Uh, it seems like a lot of Republicans aren't as skeptical about guns going to Ukraine. It's the question of the quote unquote butter that's going to Ukraine, sort of the humanitarian aid, the winterization aid that's going to Ukraine that, of course, Democrats and establishment Republicans argue is critical. Uh, and so, uh, some folks who are, who are more aligned with Trump are going to be casting a skeptical eye on. What's interesting is that there's a similar debate happening within the Democratic Party. Jack, tell us about the letter that pushed the Biden administration to pursue more diplomacy in Russia's war with Ukraine. What was in that letter, which was sent to the president by House progressive leaders? And why do you think it was so surprising to fellow Democrats? Yeah, so the, the, congressional, the congressional progressive uh, caucus letter that, that was sent out uh, the other week, uh, of course, Pramila Jayapal, the, the leader of that caucus on the Hill, saying it was sent out by mistake, throwing staffers under the bus for that uh, before ultimately taking responsibility. Uh, just the, the timing of it was, was so surprising to folks. And, and the content of that letter, if you looked through that letter, it cited Russia's gains on the battlefield, uh, looking at, of course, what was going on uh, during the summer as Russia launched an offensive in the Donbass region uh, and appealing for talks to be on the table. I think what, what's really interesting about this letter uh, is not only sort of uh, the, the cluster that this created and, and kind of this, this classic Washington parlor game we saw play out uh, of pointing fingers and, and who's who, but what's, what's fascinating is that it, it, the Ukraine situation just in general presents a very difficult situation for progressives because a lot of people have, of course, rallied around the Ukrainians. We've seen Ukraine's bravery on the battlefield. We've seen these, these offensives take place uh, in October that have really pushed the Russians on their heels. Uh, and that it's caused certain fissures uh, among the progressive movement, some even leaving uh, the anti-war Quincy Institute, which was behind that letter that, that Jayapal and, and uh, the other CPC members sent out. Um, because you see such a, a clear-cut case here, of Russia undertaking an, an illegal invasion 
of a sovereign country and, and America having a major role here. So it's going to be a fascinating question, just, just long-term how the progressives break down on this. It certainly seems like a lot of the progressives uh, who disavowed that letter, of course, Jayapal retracting that letter, are sort of rallying behind the flag, so to speak. But we've seen Ro Khanna, the California Democrat, basically saying, look, the, the contents of that letter are right. You need to find a solution here. You need to get to talks and negotiations at, at some point. So it, it's going to be fascinating to see how the progressives square that circle. But it, it certainly puts them on the back foot politically within the Biden administration. A lot going on in this issue in the U.S. A number of subscribers have written in to ask about this from the other perspective. Amy, how big of a deal are the midterms if I'm sitting in Kiev right now? Where does this discussion leave support for Ukraine? The midterms are, of course, going to be very closely watched um, um, in Kiev, but also, of course, in Moscow as well, as you outlined in the introduction. Um, my sense from speaking to Ukrainians is that they do feel that the support here in D.C. is very much bipartisan and that there is, is a good deal of confidence that the military aid that they've had thus far will continue. But of course, I think under the surface there, you can't not be nervous with a question like that. Um, U.S. military aid, the question of U.S. military aid to Ukraine is very much existential. The U.S. is the largest uh, military donor uh, to Ukraine by a long shot. Um, there is no other country which could could make up the shortfall if the U.S. was was to step back from this. Um, and so I think just given the magnitude of it, I think they will, of course, be watching this closely. And you just can't help feel a little bit nervous because of the stakes. And moving away from Russia's war in Ukraine, just for a moment, I want to talk about China. At times, it feels like the Biden administration is continuing Trump's aggressive policies. The administration continues to slap sanctions on Beijing. They've dramatically expanded controls on technology flowing to and from the country. Jack, how has this greater push for decoupling with China featured in the midterms? Well, I think, uh, Amelia, we were talking about sort of the Rust Belt and, and these post-industrial places uh, across America where the, where the 2020 election between Biden and Trump was really fought. We're seeing in those states uh, just a, a major push for decoupling with China, uh, particularly in the Ohio Senate race, as we mentioned, uh, both candidates there, uh, J.D. Vance, uh, the Republican pro-Trump candidate, um, and his, his rival on the Democratic side, pushing for more of a trade war, pushing for the Biden administration to put teeth into the, the so-called CHIPS Act that will onshore more semiconductor manufacturing, put more of those jobs back in the United States or back in allied countries. But we really see sort of more of this um, economic nationalism, this, this push to, to onshore things in the United States uh, as China gets more and more aggressive economically. Uh, and that's actually led to to some hawkishness. We see uh, in the upper chamber, certainly uh, Republicans centered around Josh Hawley, um, Tom Cotton, uh, and this new generation of Republicans that, that could come in, uh, Vance among them in Ohio, and of course, Blake Masters in Arizona, if he succeeds in toppling Mark Kelly there, uh, folks who could really kind of push the gamut of trying to arm up countries like Taiwan, try to make the, the region more resilient. So it's this economic nationalism, economic isolationism to a degree, tinged with uh, making the, the region more resilient if China is indeed to undertake uh, a mission to retake Taiwan by force. John Bateman of the Carnegie Endowment, formerly Director for Cyber Strategy Implementation in the Office of the Secretary of Defense, was on FP Live earlier this week, and he was saying that the Biden administration is moving forward with a very unilateral policy in terms of tech decoupling. It's not waiting for consent from its allies before imposing the most aggressive sanctions. 
Robbie, you're a diplomatic correspondent. Do you agree with this assessment? And could it be that this is also part of the Democratic Party's push to win over more conservative voters, perhaps? Yeah, on the, on the first part, I absolutely agree. I think some of these really uh, hardline uh Export control policies actually caught some some European allies off guard um, when I've been talking with European diplomats. Um, we used to go hand in hand, step in step with with Europe, but I think there's a broad sentiment in both parties these days in Washington that that Europe just isn't getting up to speed on the geopolitical threat from China that that it needs to be. And so, you know, if they're not going along at our speed, we're we're going to go at our at our own speed. Um, I think within the Democratic Party. Um, it's less of a domestic political calculation. It seems like everyone is on board with the hawkish China approach in, in Washington these days. Um, it seems like, you know, it's it's not that big of a of a swing touch point for, for voters in, in some of these battleground states. Um, but with that said, I, I think there's some interesting dynamics playing out within the Democratic Party. Um, I think you might um, in, in the next uh, congressional term see a little more tension between the progressives and, and more centrist Democrats over over China policy. We've seen this with a few bills play out in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Um, I won't get into the boring nitty gritty details of that. But in effect, I think you, you're seeing some progressive uh, uh, Democrats voice concerns, worry that we're sort of sleepwalking into a new Cold War with China um, and shoveling a bunch of arms to Taiwan um, and taking a really combative approach to China militarily um, might not be the right move to make. Um, I think that is not a uh, significant portion of the Democratic Party, but I think we are starting to see cracks and fissures, at least on, on the left wing of the American political spectrum spectrum and in how to deal with China, even though there is this broad consensus that China represents this geopolitical threat that we need to confront it in, in some new ways going into the 21st century. Amy, from left to right, do you think a Republican takeover in Congress might mean even more confrontational policies when it comes to Biden's approach in dealing with China? Our subscriber Carl Salk asked a similar question. I think we'll see broadly a continuation. I mean, one of the interesting uh, things about, you know, the, the transition from the Trump to the Biden administration is actually there was a lot of continuity on China policy. When we were reporting on the, the new administration's uh, national security strategy, which came out a couple of weeks ago, one of the people I spoke to for that piece said that they actually felt it was even more hawkish on China than Trump had been. And so that's really, really quite saying something. This is... Um, really something that Republicans and Democrats can agree on. I think that we, you know, we may see some politicking around the fringes about how to do it, best ways to do it, quite how harsh to be, but I think it will it will be uh, very much continuity. And if you just look at the, you know, the, the CHIPS Act, which Jack, Jack mentioned earlier, this, this enormous effort to kind of onshore um, both to the U.S. and among allies, the production of these of these critical chips that was actually authored by Senator Todd Young, who's from Indiana, in 2020, and it was then co-sponsored by Chuck Schumer, a very liberal senator from New York. And so you do have these kind of uh, these strange bed bedfellows coming together in Congress uh, over the China issue. Todd Young and Chuck Schumer are strange bedfellows. That's interesting history on that. Moving into a different part of the world, this time to Saudi Arabia and the famous fist pump heard around the world when President Biden visited the country and its leader, Prince Mohammed bin Salman, in an attempt to maintain the global supply of energy. Biden was heavily criticized after that visit for downplaying human rights. And then last month, the OPEC plus decision to slash the output of oil only made matters worse for Biden and his handling of the Saudi relationship. The Biden administration have, has responded to this saying it's disappointed. But Jack, how might the midterms impact 
what the administration does next on this. Well, Amelia, I think it's safe to say you're not going to see another fist bump between Biden and MBS. Uh, it's fascinating that, that Saudi Arabia is kind of this linkage issue in the political spectrum. It's, it's where Bernie Sanders progressives and Trump Republicans almost meet up in the middle. Uh, and we saw that, of course, uh, going on years back um, with the pressure that, that both of those forces in Congress put on the Trump administration uh, to cancel U.S. military involvement, U.S. refueling of the Saudi-led coalition that was fighting in, in Yemen, a war that a lot of people thought was unjust. They didn't want American hands in. But this is just going to be difficult for Biden because going back to Jimmy Carter, uh, there are a lot of pressures within the Democratic Party um, to, to press against uh, human rights violations and human rights violators. And you have a region here in the Middle East where you don't have a convenient, best buddy, stable democracy like a, a Canada or, or a Switzerland. Um, and so it's going to be a challenge to Biden's more realist foreign policy tendencies that are sometimes pushed within his NSC, of course, Brett McGurk uh, seems to be a spearhead of this uh, for things like the Abraham Accords, always controversial within the Biden administration, but they really wanted to push, of course, that normalization between Israel and Saudi Arabia, uh, now much more difficult to do, uh, even when MBS does come into power as the king. So this is just going to be sort of a, a canker sore relationship, kind of an ankle biter situation for the Biden administration. We've got so many topics to get through here. I'm going to move on to Afghanistan and the chaotic exit of U.S. troops there and the immediate takeover by the Taliban last summer. That was a debacle for the Biden administration. And Robbie, heading into next week, how are Republicans going to use that debacle against the president and the Democrats? Do you expect to see an investigation? Probably. Yeah, I, it's it's really interesting. When I was looking at the um, real clear politics polling average, the last time that uh, Joe Biden had a, above a 50% approval rating was the day that the Taliban took Kabul. Um, and so I think this is a really interesting topic where foreign policy has has really had a direct impact on on the midterms. And what what the debacle in Afghanistan did was was poke holes in one of Biden's most powerful arguments when he was. Uh, uh, working against Trump in the 2020 elections. And that is, you know, I am competent. I'm the quote unquote adult in the room. I will bring competency, good management, uh, you know, responsibility back into the realm of, of U.S. foreign policy and Afghanistan completely erased that. Um, so in, in the future, I mean, I think you'll see the Republicans hit this. Um, there's definitely going to be some congressional investigations, particularly if Republicans take the House uh, Mike McCall, the uh, top Republican on the House Foreign Affairs Committee, who put out a report, an interim report, um, investigating what led up to the, the final chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan, has made no secret that he wants to um, do some really uh, uh, deep investigations into what went wrong, including su subpoenas on some Biden administration officials from the NSC and State Department. Um, so if they take the House, uh, there's definitely going to be some contentious political battles about what these investigations will look like and the extent to which the Biden administration will cooperate and play ball with Republicans. And what about Iran too, Robbie? Will a Republican takeover further impede movement in terms of reaching a nuclear deal, do you think? 
I mean, the, the nuclear deal at this point is is dead on arrival. Um, Biden's top Iran envoy just a couple of days ago said we're not going to waste our time on on the nuclear deal at this point. Um, I think Republicans are always going to use Iran as a talking point um, to to hit Biden, saying that they're that they're too soft on Iran. Uh, but interestingly, Iran has sort of put itself into a, a corner with another part of the Biden administration now on Europe, um, and that is it's drawing the ire of all the Russia hawks. Uh, Russia is increasingly, as Jack has reported, uh, relying on Iranian drones and munitions to, to fund its flagging war efforts in Ukraine. Um, and I think that's really altering the calculus of the Biden administration of how much leeway they're willing to give Iran in the, in the negotiations on the nuclear deal, in addition to the massive and, and widespread protests um, uh, going on in Iran right now um, against the uh, regime's very uh, brutal crackdown on, on women's rights. And I would encourage everyone to check out our In Focus bar on our homepage right now, which has a lot of um, great reading on Iran and what's going on there at the moment. Um, just finally, I wanted to touch on climate change um, and what impact the midterms could have on the progress Biden has made in that area. Um, Robbie, maybe I can go to you on this again. The Inflation Reduction Act includes a good deal of funding for climate-related issues. But if they do regain control, I'm curious what Republicans could do in terms of this landmark piece of legislation. I know that Republicans in the House have already said that they would vote to repeal it, but talk us through the logistics of what they could actually do in terms of walking it back. Yeah, in short, they're not going to get a veto-proof majority to try to repeal any elements of this law. What they could do, though, is gum up the works on a lot of the funding, these, these tens of billions of dollars in funding on transition to green energy. Um, I think a perfect model of that is what happened in 2015 with the Solyndra Solar uh, Energy Company that the Obama administration tried to give a lot of money to and ended up going bankrupt um, because of congressional oversight and blocking into funding on that. So I think you'll see a lot of moves by Republicans to gum up the work on these government projects that they view as you know, large, expensive boondoggles that are full of government waste and government corruption, while the Democrats say, no, this are, these are, you know, necessary, urgent projects to try and tackle climate change, which the Biden administration phrases as the most pressing national security issue facing the United States today. And I just wanted to thank subscriber Talia Yuzuku for that question. Okay, unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. Robbie, Jack, Amy, thank you so much for doing this. It was great to have you here on FP Live. You've been listening to FP Live, foreign policy's platform for live journalism. If you're interested in learning more or want to watch the next FP Live, check out our website at foreignpolicy.com slash live. Thanks for listening to Foreign Policy Playlist. Our production team includes Tal Alroy, Laura rosbrow Tallum, Rosie Julin, and Yure Wu. I'm Ravi Agrawal. Thanks for listening. 
Vacation <laughs> sex is always irresistible. Gwyneth Paltrow. I could make it all about them and not have to focus on my own problems. <laughs> and Seth Rogen. <laughs> so if you're wondering what your favorite celebrity or I would do in your situation, just listen and subscribe to Anna Ferris is Unqualified. Free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs> <laughs>